Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. Programming notes for the week of December 18th, 2022. Start Happy Hanukkah to all the Jewish listeners out there. One thing I'm thankful for is puzzle and strategy games. They save my sanity when my ADHD really kicks in. Disgaea on the uh, PlayStation series, you know, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, has some kind of strange plots, but the game mechanics in the series are very, very fun. So my call to action is, I'm pretty sure I've done this call to action, but it's the giving season or whatever. Tell three people that positively influenced your thinking this year that they did just that. Just comment on a LinkedIn post, send them a message, etc. Make them know you appreciate their work. And I'm not saying do it to me, though those messages are always appreciated. But I think it's really important to let people know about this, especially if you see it from people that are from underrepresented groups, you know, make them feel seen and heard, you know, let them know that you think they are doing some awesome work and to keep it up. So what's on tap for the episodes this week? On Monday, we have episode 169, sharpening your competitive advantage with data. The solution is not simple. An interview with Alexa Westlake. Alexa and I discussed how to really use your data to hone your competitive edge and also that not everything in your business is data, 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 and that you don't have to do data for every single aspect as well. But you know, honing your competitive edge and then how do you also pair with business stakeholders, especially where, you know, quote unquote, data is not their number one priority, right? Getting business done is their number one priority. Data can obviously be an incredibly crucial part of that, making good business decisions, you know, keeping up with uh, what's actually happening and, and being able to pivot in real time. But data itself is not their number one priority. So how can you get the work to be valuable and meaningful to them? What's that gap rather than just providing data? Are you providing them the insights? Are you providing them something that they can, you know, take actions on? There's a lot in the episode where you will probably say, well, yeah, when you hear it. And then a, a second later or two, you'll pause and realize it's not something you've really heard said aloud. She really boils a lot down extremely well. Where You'll just kind of pause and go, huh, I haven't really specifically thought about that, but it just makes sense. So I think you'll get a lot out from that one. On Tuesday, it's episode 170. When should you reorganize for data mesh? Mesh musings number 38. So this is a summation of what I see as the puts and takes of when, where, how to look at reorganization around data mesh. You know, should you do it all up front or all at the end? Or how did you find your balance here? The whole point is consider your own org, your path, your momentum and pace, etc. But 
take all of that and find your balance. There are a few, what I hope are quite good tips in this as to when I think it makes sense, but you know, you really do have to find your own way. And I think my number one tip isn't to listen necessarily to this episode. Yeah, I think you should, and then take this and, and kind of go with it. But my number one tip is to reach out to multiple people, especially past guests of this podcast, and just ask, like, how did you decide when to reorganize? How, why? Like, all of that, I think that will be the best guide to figuring this out. And then on Friday, we have episode 171, which is creating scalable interoperability, not only systems, via domain-driven design, which is an interview with Vlad Kononov. And Vlad wrote a great book uh, through O'Reilly about um, learning domain-driven design. And so I, I had him on here to talk about DDD in general, not just DDD for data. We've had um, you know, a few you know, DDD or domain-driven design for data uh, episodes. I think there have been four where that's been kind of the main focus. But I think this helps to really frame what is domain-driven design? What are the differences between regular DDD for software and DDD for data? What makes sense to borrow? And really, what doesn't make sense to borrow and adapt, right? Um, Jamak has talked about she decontextualizes stuff and recontextualizes it for data. Well, we want to do that for domain-driven design, but there's parts of it that we don't want to bring over because they just don't translate. If you are already an expert on uh, DDD or you want to avoid the topic entirely, I get it. But there's a lot of very useful distinctions and kind of specific phrasing and really ways to think about this and break it down um, so that we can make sure that we are applying what we need from domain-driven design practices and data, but also not bringing over uh, what we don't need or, or what might actually be a hindrance. So I think there's a lot in that one as well. With all that, on to the summaries for Alexa and Vlad's episodes this week. Extended summary for episode 169, Sharpening Your Competitive Advantage with Data. The solution is not simple. Interview with Alexa Westlake. So in this episode, I interviewed Alexa, who's a senior data analyst at Okta. To be clear, though, she was only representing her own views. So kind of getting into the meat of it, when asking people generally, what do they think of data? Alexa has seen many fall into one of two camps. Either data is transformational or data is expensive. And in truth, both are probably right. There is massive investment involved to generate good data, but most organizations are still struggling to scale and to actually use that for that transformation, right? Like then you're just throwing money at it. Quote unquote, the data is bad. You know, it's such a common refrain across the industry, but Alexa believes that it's like, data without context, essentially meaningless. What aspect of the data is bad? What makes it bad versus good? Why is it bad? Do we need better collection processes in place? Do we need more expertise in transforming and analyzing the data? 
And when answering those questions, it's often very difficult to figure out what are the overarching problems that you can tackle instead of building point solutions of, well, this one data set was having these troubles. So we're just going to do this one little thing instead of like, how do we solve this at the kind of root of the problem? Alexa has seen it can be a bit of a scary proposition to try to get exec sponsorship to generate new data specifically for the purpose of analytics. So most companies start with what data they have today and don't get overly ambitious, you know, at the very least until they are proving they can deal with what they have now well and generate value from it. So, you know, really think about how, what data would be helpful, but, you know, also embed in the ethics and the, um, you know, legal as well as to what can you collect and, and why. But also at the same time, many companies fall victim to the sunk cost fallacy in data of we've spent a bunch on this platform already. We have to focus on scaling it up. And that's often throwing good money after bad. You can't just constantly change your platform, right? That has other costs that has uh, kind of, I can't remember who said it earlier, but somebody was talking about innovation tokens and that, you know, you only have a few tokens (laughs) where you can keep constantly changing things. But Ignoring problems simply because the decision was already made is a recipe for disaster. According to Alexa, a lot of the challenges in data come from the decision makers not really understanding their internal data ecosystems. So we need to make it easier for execs to make better decisions around not just with the data, but of like what to do about data. You know, that one ML model might have 40 plus pipelines in some form or fashion that feed into it. Of course, it's likely to degrade. So, you know, how do you think about creating things that are sustainable and that you communicate that to people? And there is often an urgency to solve the problem of today with a solution that addresses the challenge today for that specific use case. Fighting the symptoms, again, instead of tackling the cause of the issues. Well, something like data mesh or any other large-scale data transformation initiative is a big change, Alexa believes we shouldn't make that a giant leap instead of small steps. This is a through line of a lot of these episodes of too many people, you know, this has been a big failure criteria in data, why 80% of data initiatives fail, is that we put too many eggs in one basket and we don't iterate and learn and and kind of move in, in an appropriate way. So you have to get two small wins as you're turning the ship to keep earning the right to steer the ship. And you shouldn't also revolve the entire transformation around a negative, a pain point. If you do, you'll end up focusing on the pain too much instead of the goal. And Alexa made a really great point of it's hard to sustain focus and drive around pain, especially as that pain starts to lessen because you're doing the right things you need to really, that that pain can focus you on an area, but you need to have an objective and a goal, not just the pain. So look to focus on the motivation behind why you are doing data transformation work, but also what, what are those incremental results so you can build up that momentum and get people kind of happy to be doing the work instead of just focusing on avoiding pain or addressing pain. A few ways to burn out your data team Alexa mentioned not providing them work they feel is meaningful. 
putting low priority on data work in general, but especially on the that kind of interesting insight generation. People want to work on just interesting things. Data not being part of the critical path to, path to business success. Essentially, if people work, aren't working on interesting, important, and valued work, they will leave. They will burn out. Alexa believes it's crucial to focus on your communication when working with the business. They aren't well-versed in data terminology or even data concepts. So focus on communicating to them what matters and why instead of the data jargon. Most decision makers make so many decisions across so many contexts. Work to make it as easy as possible for them to make good decisions about data, not just good decisions with data. Scott Taylor, uh, in his episode, talked about a lot of this stuff. We talked about kind of popping your data bubble and stopping with the the kind of data babble as well. A really uh, good quote that Alexa said was kind of never jump in hope, right? This was about measuring and maintaining momentum. To do data work right, you can't be an order taker. Taking the requirements, going away to build, and then presenting kind of the thing at the end, and it's done. Get closer to the decision makers. Understand what their expectations and needs are. Are are those expectations shifting? Are they expecting too much? Have the constant flow of information bi-directionally to make sure you are still doing valuable and valued work, right? Katie Bauer talked about there's a difference between valued and valuable. And so constantly keep in communication and make sure that you're still doing the stuff that they care about. And if their priorities change, that can suck, but it's way better to know about it now than after you've put in another six weeks of work. There's often a lot of pain around data for business stakeholders, but they typically can't directly identify the exact source of pain in Alexa's experience. So collaborate with them to figure out the actual pain so you aren't just treating symptoms. And work with them to explain that just like in medicine, exercise, diet, etc., there isn't a miracle cure or improvement. Data work takes time. Explain why it will take time and drive to what actually matters to address. Talked about this a lot of if you're a requirement taker, then you don't know what actually matters of those requirements and you're not kind of horse trading, you're not being flexible, you're not sharing that information back and forth and saying, why does this matter? Okay, you've you've given me 17 things you want, like how much of these are actually the things that drive value? You know, a common example in this is like, what does real time mean for you and what value does real time drive? It's often two hours delay is fine. Just six of of the 24 to 48 hour data warehouse delay, right? For Alexa, it's very easy to try to build out governance centrally because it maintains a feeling, if not a reality, of control. The reaction of most humans to the unknown is fear but you can make slow improvements to build trust and momentum. As Laura Madsen also talked about in her episode, if you don't invest the time to empower and enable your employees around data, you won't get good returns from it. To do any data work, but especially something like data mesh right, you need champions in the domains to help, both to help you move things forward, 
but also that constant communication loop as the world and thus requirements and uh, you know, wishes and things like that change. Focus on them being your partner and treating them like a customer of your product. That doesn't mean the customer is always right, right? That's really a big part of product thinking is I'm not just going to jump to what everyone says and wants, but you need to treat them like a partner instead of kind of some kind of uh, the, the situation that a lot of teams have of order takers or, you know, somebody just gets what they get. You get the data that you get and that's all you get. It's very easy to fall into the trap of putting too much emphasis on the data work, according to Alexa. It is not likely to make or break your organization, but it can be a significant competitive advantage. Data can unlock your value potential and sharpen your competitive advantage. But it's not that if we don't do this bit of data work, we're going to go out of business, right? Putting it in that dire of circumstances kind of undermines the point that you're trying to make of the data work is important. So some quick tidbits, you know, quote unquote, without literacy, all your analytics is, is expensive. Love that quote by, by Alexa. Alignment is one of the hardest things to do organizationally and is far more crucial in data work than most believe. Be prepared to repeat yourself over and over and over. So again, be prepared to repeat yourself. <laughs> it's easy and often fun for data people to focus on the raw data you have instead of the insights you can generate, you know, focusing on the speeds and feeds and the cool things you can do with, with data. When talking to business stakeholders, how often do they care about the data itself versus what it means? Focus on communicating in what matters. Extract from them what matters, not that speeds and feeds aspects of data. Extended summary for episode 171, creating scalable interoperability, not only systems, via domain-driven design, an interview with Vlad Kononov. So in this episode, I interviewed Vlad, author of Learning Domain-Driven Design, or DDD, through O'Reilly, Senior Cloud Architect at Doit International, and independent consultants on DDD and distributed systems. Before we jump in, the phrase DDD is used a lot, right? It stands for domain-driven design, just to remind you of that. We've had past episodes on DDD for data, but I want to make it clear what that means. It's also important to note that there are some very specific terms used in DDD, and it is easy to get overwhelmed about trying to exactly figure out what each term means and, and keep them all straight. Try to look for the meaning and ignore the terms. We are designing how things work together, whether business capability, software systems, or, or general flows, right? It's not about these are the exact terms, which is funny because DDD focuses so much on getting to uh, specific languages. There's also the importance of the difference between a published language and a ubiquitous language in DDD. Essentially, the ubiquitous language is the language of the domain and the published language is the language used to share information from the domain externally to other domains. So ubiquitous is the internal facing between the business and software engineers in the domain. 
and the published language is the external facing to the rest of the organization. So that would be like in uh, Data Mesh, your API or, or whatever interface you have to your data products for the rest of the organization would be in a published language. So Vlad started off with a sim- simple domain-driven design definition. Software design should be a function of the system's business domain. But it once took him writing a 90-page book to really unpack what that meant. <laughs> domain-driven design feels simple until you start to really dive you know, moderately deep and you realize, you know, 5M meant five miles, not five meters. So why do we care about DDD? Per Vlad, it helps you learn more about your business domain identify its requirements and strategic needs, and then identify what makes a software system you are developing valuable. DDD also provides a set of design patterns and architectural styles to design your software solutions. Putting those two together, it bridges the divide between the business requirements and the actual design of the software solutions, so your software solutions are designed to explicitly meet the direct needs of the business rather than through layers of abstractions and potential miscommunication. For Vlad, the term domain is very complicated because it means a very specific thing in domain-driven design, but it is often used interchangeably to mean what DDD would potentially call a subdomain, but probably more correctly a bounded context. As an example, in episode 133, Amara Gafur mentioned her client has 21 domains across 100,000 plus people company. But in episode 130 with uh, Jean-Georges Perrin or JGP, he used domain to mean a team of three to six people. So, you know, one 21 domains across 100,000 people. So averaging out about 5,000 and another person using the exact same phrase to mean a group of three to six people. So getting specific around what the term domain actually means is important, especially in your data mesh implementation, especially when you're kind of trying to not just let that word mean essentially all things and nothing, right, at the same time. In in DDD, it's also important to note that subdomains will not cover all aspects of a domain because certain parts do not have software systems covering them. A key aspect of DDD is founding your boundaries between the subdomains, which are essentially these sets of interrelated use cases. So a business capabilities model is actually what most people are thinking of when discussing DDD subdomains, according to Vlad. He noted in an email, quote unquote, the business capabilities model is a more precise way to map a business domain than DDD subdomains. It gives much more insight, though usually the subdomains model provides just enough insight needed for designing software systems. So while we should think about, you know, if you want to use the term domain or whatever, what this is saying is that you know, in DDD, a domain is a very specific thing. A subdomain is is a very specific thing. And when we think about these hierarchical structures, those are much more business capabilities than it is kind of what most people have called a domain. So, you know, this is where you can have that hierarchy. So marketing may be tier one business capability, and that might be broken down into digital marketing versus brand marketing versus et cetera at the tier two. And then digital marketing might be broken down into lead generation and demand generation or paid versus organic or 
many other ways, right? You can get that hierarchical model, but that's more what DDD actually calls business capabilities. But when we talk about DDD for data, we kind of just use these terms pretty loosely. (laughs) So DDD is again about finding the boundaries between your use cases or a coherent set of use cases that work together. Those boundaries are used to drive the software system design decisions, how things work together, what architecture to use, etc. Vlad believes the concept of a domain in software is very different from the domain in data mesh, right? This kind of is controversial in that most people don't realize that it's very, very different. But again, when you look at what it actually means in DDD, it is very different than what we're talking about in data mesh. Essentially, when attempting to do DDD for data, we misuse that term domain to mean line of business or business domain. In DDD, the boundaries that the team can decide on is how the software components themselves work together across boundaries, but they can't really change the business capability boundaries or the subdomain boundaries. It's all about kind of finding them. But in data, you actually have the ability to change the business capability boundaries and how things are grouped into bounded context to impact the flows instead of simply identifying them. So it's pretty important if you're looking at how to do DDD for data that you don't try and copy paste it over because it's just not going to work if you're actually (laughs) good at doing DDD. So we can't really reflect the real world in general perfectly in, in software or even all that closely. So instead, you know, Vlad is saying and, and DDD is saying, use the concept of, of a model where the model is designed to solve a problem. The model should contain the minimum knowledge to solve that business problem. This significantly limits scope, which means preventing needless complexity. So that model thing is is actually a pretty important concept to dig into. A key aspect of DDD, which translates extremely well to DDD for data and data mesh, is finding the ubiquitous language. You must get to a level of communication where the software engineers can understand the domain well enough to speak in the language of the domain with the subject matter experts, or the SMEs, typically referred to as the business. So a note from my side, in data mesh, data product developers will need to speak in the ubiquitous language of the domain to understand how to share the domain's context with the rest of the organization. And then in general, it remains to be seen how much data products should be specifically in the language of the domain versus the language of the broader organization, aka the published language in DDD. Vlad discussed how important iteration is in DDD. It's not about getting it perfect the first time. It's about getting something out there and improving upon it as you learn more and and as the world and domains slash subdomains evolve. This applies well in data mesh because iteration and open sharing are crucial to getting to a a data-driven culture. However, in DDD, evolution of models creates friction. The way the systems were integrated is now changing, so that is where there is a published language, essentially the integration language for how domains slash subdomains communicate across boundaries. This is decoupled from the business systems, so the business systems within the domain can evolve without it impacting how others interact with the domain. 
In data, the data warehouse has typically been quite tightly coupled. So changes are extremely painful, or in the case of the data lake, it is often raw data with no real published language or version controlling. This is a big friction point data mesh aims to address, but exactly how companies address it will be varied and we are still figuring it out as a collective industry, a collective community around data mesh. In DDD, Vlad doesn't like the concept of a single integration contract for all purposes. That is that mythical unicorn type of approach where it's good enough for every scenario. And again, remember this integration contract is how uh, is the published language. It's how you interact with the rest of the organization where they can actually consume from your uh, what, what you're publishing um, on the microservices side, on the operational side. Instead, he recommends communicating with the other party in your integration contract to find what works for them. It means less work for the producer and the consumer, one, has a say, so more buy-in, and two, gets what they want. Of course, this can mean more overhead, because if you've got a whole bunch of integration contracts with every single consumer, uh, that means more overhead. That's something in data mesh, it remains to be seen if this will create too much overhead. A big issue in data is overly specifically engineered solutions leading to little reuse. So we must balance that usability for key consumers with usability by all while considering that overhead. Again, we haven't really figured out exactly how to do that. Vlad then went into some of the patterns for actually sharing information in DDD, if you'd like to dig deeper in the episode. An anti-corruption layer in DDD provides protection for domains consuming information from potentially ineffective models to your own to their own use case, according to Vlad. That doesn't mean the integration contracts themselves are ineffective or are bad, but it might mean that some there's some terminology difference, right? We always use the example of what does customer mean? That would invalidate some of the work you are doing within your own domain because the model of that other domain contradicts your internal model and use case. It's crucial to understand how to implement these anti-corruption protections for data consumers. But in data mesh, data consumers should also make sure producers understand when things are ineffective or counter to their internal model. It doesn't mean things will necessarily change, that the data product producer has to change everything for that one consumer, but it makes the friction point kind of public and explicit, resulting in better understanding at the least and maybe a better solution for all at at best. For Vlad, pain in software can actually be good. It helps us to at least identify where there is friction and try to address it. But many teams try to ignore pain in software. It's a signal your boundaries are ineffective. That can be simply because things have changed and they were actually effective boundaries before and not a sign you had been doing it wrong. But being on the lookout for where change will be effective and value add is crucial to doing DDD right. I think this is something where we've talked about this a lot, that the cost of of change in data is much higher than even in software. And so we have to be ready for there to be pain and that that's not necessarily 
a terrible thing. It means that you want to reevaluate whether things should be changed, but it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to right now, right? You can build to a certain amount of pain. You know, eh, I've got a small headache. I'm not going to go and take, you know, a migraine medication right now. If it gets worse, then yeah, I might. But, you know, it's, it's that kind of figuring out the balance there. It's important to keep an eye on what we are sharing by thinking about what could be more effective as well in DDD, according to Vlad. As we learn more about a domain or as the real world changes, we can share better information. So change can be a value add. We obviously want to balance that with constant change because that can obviously cause a lot of pain. But if you can more effectively share information, look to do it. We have uh, written language now. We didn't 15,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. So we are far better at sharing information. When you develop a better way, look to implement it. Vlad finished by saying it's okay to dip your toe in the water relative to DDD. You don't have to learn everything and have an all or nothing approach. You can take parts of it and slowly adapt your ways of working. Important for data mesh too, right? You can take pieces of data mesh and it's not going to be perfect. Just keep making progress and don't delude yourself of the work yet to be done. I think there are risky ways to do that, but there are some non-risky ways, right? Uh, I think a big one has been people not taking on really complex governance challenges with their first data products, where it's like really complex access control and PII controls and all this stuff. And people just go, we're not going to do that in our first one. And that's completely fine, right? At some point, you'll probably need to go there, but it's okay to not try and take on everything right at the off. Uh, you know, we can put things into production, test them, learn, iterate, all of that. So uh, I think this is a really, really helpful episode in framing DDD. But if you don't care about DDD, then this is probably not the right episode <laughs> to listen to. But I learned a ton and it really, really helped me solidify a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. 